Clear for takeoff. Runway 28 left. Fly runway heading. Welcome to another brand new episode of Living in Flight, your go-to podcast for everything in the world of aviation. Exclusive interview conversations with industry professionals and enthusiasts. Strap on your seatbelt, put on your headset, and get ready for Living in Flight. Okay, so historically, we've started these off with like a, an introduction that Matt and I give. Um, one thing that's easier is just having you uh, in with us today is we can just introduce you here. So I'm sitting down today with Jason Lehman. Matt couldn't make it today. Uh, his uh, He's got like a foster dog and they have a uh, they had like a, a vet appointment they had to schedule. Uh, so unfortunately, he couldn't make it today. But I'm sitting here with Jason Lehman. So Jason, bit of backstory, was a captain I flew with at SkyWest. A lot of us at SkyWest regarded Jason as the ideal captain to fly with. But we're not so much interested in his amazing captain stories that he might be able to share with us. With us. But we'll, I'm sure we'll hear some. Jason is actually from Australia, and we're here today to talk to him about what doing flight training in Australia is like and kind of his background and why he came to the U.S. to fly. So... Jason, without anything further, why don't you take it away for us and tell us about kind of what got you into aviation in Australia? All right. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks for that glowing report. I'll give you your 20 bucks later. (laughs) (coughs) Um, Well, I guess... I suppose we'll start at the beginning, I suppose. Seems like the best place to start. I was born. (laughs) Yes. So it was good old 1990... Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Dated myself already. Um... So, originally, I didn't actually grow up to be a pilot. Like, flying, if you excuse the pun, wasn't really on my radar. Um, I originally wanted to be a surgeon, but... um, You wanted to be a surgeon? I did, because there's nothing more I like than helping people in this world, um, in one way or another. And, you know, back when I was a wee boy, I thought, I'll get in the medical field, because one, being a doctor is pretty good, make a bit of coin, and that's kind of a nice little side benefit. But also... Just in general, like the nuts and bolts of how this world works fascinates me. Like the anatomy of the human body or say how jet engine works. It's all the same to me. It's all, all the just same. Fascinating. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sort of late primary school. Uh, yeah, primary school is grades, say, one to six. And then high school is seven to 12. So for your American viewers, interpolate where middle school is and all that because I don't know. Um, but in late primary school, sort of early high school, six to nine, um, I still wanted to be this doctor. But then we watched this little series on a TV sh- uh, program called SBS back home. It was, can't remember the name of the thing, but it was done by a German doctor called Gunther von Hagens. Um, and basically, he had this little four-episode docuseries. He would actually bring... Uh, people who have donated the body to science into a live autopsy room and perform autopsies in front of a live studio audience. It was actually kind of interesting. But where I got dissuaded from being a surgeon was the amount of force required to operate on these bodies. I'm talking having a hacksaw sawing through bones. Just the amount of effort required made me feel a bit sort of squeamish. I'm like, ah, it's one thing to do that on, you know, a cadaver, but on a live person. I don't think I could do that. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, uh, well, maybe I'll do something else, I guess. Um, and then I sort of went through 
sort of the middle of high school going, I don't know what to do. And then we all got sat down in the stadium for like a careers day presentation. Uh, and basically my school was, all right, everyone here has got to go to uni. You got to get some kind of degree and that will set you up for life. It's like, all right, cool. And where I'm from, there's a lot of, it's a big fruit growing industry. Where are you actually from in Australia? Oh yeah. So, uh, I tell people I'm from Melbourne just because that's a city most people know, but I'm actually about two hours North in country Victoria from a little town called Shepparton. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I round up. Like when I tell people, I tell people I'm from LA. I'm yeah. From LA. Yeah. It's just easy because no one knows the small So we can roll with Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and Shepparton's a big fruit growing industry. You've got Shepparton, Tatura, um, and all these other places around as well. All orchards. So that's where the majority of our apples, pears, plums, big fruit growing industry. So because of that, there's a lot of trades down there. Um, but that's, that's tangential to this story. So we get this book at the end of this little career seminar, and it's got all the university courses in uh, well that you can go do at like say Swinburne, RMIT, all these universities down in Melbourne. And I'm thumbing through this book. And I figured, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Guess I'll start with the A's and work my way through to the Z's. So as I'm sort of like thumbing through this book, about towards the end of the A's, there's aviation, and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Because I do have family members that fly. Um, most notably, the only one I still have that's living uh, is a Qantas captain on the 330. So I figured, well, he flies. He seems to enjoy it. So I talked to him, see what he thought about aviation, and, you know, he clearly enjoys it. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll give that a go. And it turns out this aviation course was offered in high school as a VET aviation course. And VET is vocational education and training. So every Wednesday, I'd take a day off school, go down to my local airport and start learning how to fly. So that was my plan. Um, I started doing that. And on my very first flight, my instructor took me up and he's like, oh, okay, so, you know, this is how we fly a plane. You know, this is the control column. You turn it this way. This is roll and you push it forward and back. That's pitch. And then you got the rudder down there and that's your. So now, you know, the controls just have a play. So I grab hold of this little 152 and I'm just a bit sort of apprehensive. Here in the United States, and there's a 152. <laughs> ah, it's, it's all the same. Most of what well, I guess we'll get to later is figuring out the communication difference between America and Australia. And that was kind of one of the hardest things you have to sort of learn when you go from one country to another when you learn how to fly. But yeah, I'm holding this little 152. I'm like, okay, I'll... Uh, Guess I'll roll it to the left. And like I start rolling to the left and the plane responds by rolling to the left. And I didn't have a mirror or anything, but I saw I had like the biggest, cheesiest grin on my face. I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> and ever since then, I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> you know, what's super funny for me is like in my first lesson, my instructor took like great joy in just mashing the runners and I'm sitting there feeling yaw for the first time. I just remember you're like, John, please stop. Please stop, John, please stop. I did not have the same like first lesson experience that you did where you immediately fell in love and smiled at the deflection of the controls. I desperately wanted to land. I wanted out of there really badly. So so like let's talk about training in Australia then. So you have your first flight introduction to like flight controls. What's the so this is maybe jumping a bit out ahead of it. So in this first course what do you actually what what rating equivalent are you working towards right now so you're in high school and you've got this like 
class, but what is the actual rating called that you're training for? And what does it enable you to do in Australia that's different from like a private pilot here? So it's changed a little bit now, but back when I was doing it, we had we still had a private pilot license, a commercial pilot license, and of course the ATPL, uh, the air transport pilot license. But to start with, you went for your GFPT, your general flying progress test. And it's kind of basically the equivalent of, I guess, a restricted private license. You could take the plane flying, you could have only one passenger, and at the time you could travel, I think it was 15 miles from the airport you departed from, and the training area, and basically a straight line to and from the two. So if your training area is far away, you can so still get there. it's the equivalent of like actually having to test into your solo license. Your solo, like your student solo. Because we have like a student pilot license that you basically, like anybody can get. You can just apply for it. Yep. But it means nothing until a CFI says you can solo here. Yeah. So I'm guessing it's like very similar to like your student pilot's license, only there's a test. It's more than just like filling out an application for it and having the FAA send you a card immediately. So you got to say, yeah, you still got your student pilot license. It took CASA, which is the Australian FAA, a few more weeks to sort of send it to you. Uh, you could go solo before the GFPT. Oh, really? Yep. So we had, I guess, the equivalent of stage checks, I think they're called over here. Uh, I could be wrong, but... Um, yeah, so like a lot of 141 programs here have stage checks. Yeah. Part 61, it's just like CFI yep. uh, discretion. I mean, the like in-flight pilot training does stage checks, but there's no FAA requirement that you do a stage check. Okay. We simply, we simply just do them as a function of like, you know, checking in with the student and actually seeing where they're at. Uh, okay. Does the does what's so what's it called in Australia? The version of the FAA? CASA. What does CASA stand for? The Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Gotcha. So does CASA actually require these stage checks like along the way or? Uh, they don't. It was basically a Part sixty one school equivalent, I guess, where it was just you do enough flying, uh, then your flight instructor says, "Yep, I think you're good enough to go solo," and then they'll send you for a circuit. Gotcha. Yeah. So like one forty one programs here in the U S. like actually require stage checks, uh, okay. and it's like a it's they're actually reportable events. Like when you did your airline apps at some point, and they ask you about check ride failures, like stage checks are included in a lot of that so that's there's your bit of american aviation <laughs> trivia <for> <laughs> okay um what were we talking about <laughs> i think you were telling me about this like oh yes this gfbt yeah um hurdle yeah so it's just basically just it's kind of like a bit of a checkpoint. It's like, yeah, it's on your way to a commercial license. And all it is is just basically general handling of the plane. So takeoff, landing, fly a circuit or a traffic pattern, um, do a forced landing, recover from a stall, do a steep turn. It's just general handling of flying of the plane. There's no navigation component. And once you've completed the GFVT, then you can start your navigation training for your private pilot license. Um do you have to do that GFPT thing if you're not trying to be an airline pilot? Like, let's say I just want to, let's say I'm just like a wealthy Australian. I want to buy a Cessna and live in Canberra or however you pronounce it, right? And like, I want to, <laughs> I want to fly around to the, to Uluru or whatever the rock is called out there. Um, do I have to take that? that kind of stage check thing or is that only for people interested in becoming commercial pilots um no it, you didn't even have to take it entirely to be honest it was just a way to knock because you're eventually going to have to be tested and all that anyway you can either do it 
early and get it out of the way. Or you could do it with your private pilot uh, test flight, which means you've got to do a three-hour nav and then come back and do like an hour of general your, handling. Your private pilot check ride involves a three-hour flight? Two hours, actually. The commercial was a three-hour flight. Wait, with an examiner on board for a three-hour flight? No way. Yep. <laughs> um, let's go back to... So you're training along. You take this test. Do you complete your license as part of this high school course, or is it just kind of like a wet your feet, introduce you to aviation? So I, at the end of it, because at the end of high school, there was, I could have chosen to stay with my local uh, school, or what I ultimately did was I went to a university down in Melbourne itself. So I went to a place called RMIT, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, um, because they offered a an associate degree in aviation uh, and they trained in brand new 172s with glass cockpits at an airport called uh, RAF Base Point Cook. So it's actually on an old Air Force base. It's the oldest working Air Force base in Australia and basically a glorified country club. They just keep it running to say it's the oldest, but there's actually not too much aviation Air Force stuff going on there. Occasionally you get a Hercules come in or the uh, private king for the um, pyre-ups. But that's about it. Unless something was properly going on, which in Australia not much goes on. So on like a, on a given day, <laughs> what did your, what your training schedule look like? So with RMIT, it was um, three days of theory and two days of flying. Doesn't necessarily mean you'd fly on both those days. You may just fly one of the days. But... Um, I essentially had to start everything again. So, because um, I didn't have the GFPT done, but I had the three exams towards the GFP done, the three theory exams. There's three theory exams? Yes. There's the pre solo exam, there's the pre area solo exam, and then there's a basic aeronautical knowledge exam. Uh, and that's where you start doing your Alpha Bravo Charlie charts. So, where you're loading kind of charts as well. So, you get an introduction of weight and balance very early on as long as some other general knowledge and just the teeniest bit of weather. <laughs> All right. So you, you've taken these tests yep. and, and, and you're showing up. So there's like, th- there's so every three days of flying, there's two days of just all day in a ground school. Uh, other way around. So three days all in ground school and two days of flying. Um, and again, it's flying towards the GFPT, which since has now become a restricted private license, but uh, yeah, so we did that for, uh, it was supposed to go for six months because how they had broken up the course was the first six months was all flying towards GFPT and then because that's all general handling kind of things. And then the last six months was flying towards PPL and CPL because all that's just navigation. You know, through- yeah, where do you, where does the, ins- where does the instrument rating kind of come into play? Well, because you know, you know how we have an instrument rating. Do you have an instrument rating in Australia, or is it just included? No, I do. I've got a command, multi-engine command instrument rating, but that's a separate rating that's not included in the CPL or the PPL, or even an ATPL. You do need one for an ATPL, but that's a separate rating. Gotcha. So for yeah, you can be a you can be a commercial pilot here in the U.S. without having an instrument rating. It yep. won't get you very far, mm-hmm. um, but you can you can certainly have one. So. Um, in the arc of your training then in Australia, is it like PPL, CPL, then instrument? Is that kind of how people do it? or yeah, It's usually how people do it. It's PPL, CPL, and then you got a decision to make. You can either, because 
aviation in Australia is kind of an expensive pastime. Uh, Very expensive here too. Just a little bit more accessible. How much is a 172 here? um, Like anywhere generally you can get it for 135 to 155 generally. How much is it in Australia? Would you want to take a guess? Two fifty. Okay, well, oh, let's play the price is right. The price is right. Let's guess one hundred eighty an hour for a one seventy two. Higher. Two hundred an hour for a one seventy two. Higher. Three hundred an hour for a one seventy two. Higher. No way. Wait, I don't know the conversion rate though. What like what, what? How strong is the Australian dollar relative to the American dollar? So if I got one Australian dollar, I would have about seventy seventy three cents American. Okay, so it's not too far off. No. So how much does a 172 go for in Australia? At this particular school, it was $400 per flight hour. You do realize, like, we don't even, like, wow, I don't even know what to compare that to. That is unbelievable. How much flight time did you need to get, like, a PPL and a CPL in uh, Australia? The minimum time that CASA will even look at you for having a PPL is 40 hours. Okay, that's the same as the U.S. Yep. For a commercial pilot license, it's 150 Okay, it's two fifty in the U.S. Yep, you can if it's with a um, accredited training or authorized training. I don't know. There's a term for it, ATO. Uh, you can do a hundred fifty hour CPR course. If you're not with them, you're doing a two hundred hour course. Okay, so in the U.S., yeah, if you're part one forty one, I think it's one hundred fifty hours, and if you're part sixty one, it's two hundred fifty. So it's okay. not that far off. Okay. Um, so what's the so you're just sitting there every day going through these training courses, blowing burning through money like it's paper. Yep. And do you know what's worse though? What? Because they gave you six months to do basically the GFPT, and then the next six months was the PPL and CPL. But if you hadn't completed the GFPT in that six months, you then need to re-enroll in the GFPT course. And do it all from the start again? Well, they could sit there and go, Well, we're gonna recognize your prior learning. So instead of paying the $40,000 it was, again, you could see them go, well, you've already done the theory, you've done some of the flying, but you're going to have to pay for all the flying again. Tell you what, we'll catch you a deal. Ten grand. Does that 400 include the instructor? Yeah. Okay, so if I wanted to rent it without an instructor. Oh, uh, I think it was like three. <laughs> it's still an absurd amount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an expensive hobby. It only becomes profitable once you sort of make it to – the end game, I guess. Yeah, that that that's clear. Uh, when you can fly the CRJ, then it's all worth it. Oh, that's, um, that's exactly right. So when you, so you're you're going along. When did you actually take your private pilot license test, like your check ride? Uh, so I did mine. Called over there. Um, down there. That just just a test, basically. Um, I did mine in, I believe it was August. 2012. Can you walk me through what's on that test? The PPL test? Yeah. The actual flight test? No, like, is there, I'm assuming there's a ground portion too, like an oral. Yeah. So there's a bit of an oral exam. There's a, a theory exam, which is done separately as well, which is a three hour long exam. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys have Shepherd Air down there? No. Oh, okay. So Shepherd Air would straight up not fly in Australia. Basically, just a list of exam questions and their answers and you just write learn them that would shut down CASA for two years while they redid their every single exam they did no way okay so there's a notorious exam back in Australia called the ATPL flight planning exam it is 18 questions or 16 questions or less than 20 you've got three hours to do it and basically it says all right there's a 727 
it weighs this much at brakes release. You're going from Sydney to Perth. How much fuel do you need? And it gives you a weather report for the entire continent of Australia. It says, all right, you're going to take these Victor routes to get there. Um, but you got to find out how high you can go. you got to find out how much fuel you're going to burn. you got to find out all this ridiculous stuff. you basically got to do a flight plan. That's like a, the United States version of the dispatcher test. Yeah, and that's kind of what we're and doing. They make we're, you do that. They make you do that to take your ATP. and. Yeah, and it's the most notorious exam because there's only 18 questions and it's a 70% pass rate. But And there's no shepherd air. There's no shepherd air. And the problem is because... Let's say, all right, you know, you're taking off out of Sydney and it's maybe ISA plus 13. How high can you go? It's like, well, oh, also there's no RVSM. <laughs> do they give you, do they give you like performance data for the 727? They do. They give you this little blue book and it's just, it's old, it's outdated. No one enjoys it, but it's the best we have. But back in 2010, I think it was, there was a bit of a cheating ring going around. So you'd have this little blue book that you could take in. You could highlight things in that book, but you couldn't write things in that book. So um, what ended up happening is, I don't know if people used lemon juice and did that like secret spy stuff and put it under a light or what the guy was. Somehow there was a bit of a cheating ring involved. It, when CASA found out, they voided all these exams from way back when, when they found out people were cheating, shut down the exam for I think six months and redid every question. Which, by the way, isn't multiple choice. It's you've actually got to type in an answer. That's absurd. I mean, I get it. But, I mean, like, the culture around taking these uh, exams in uh, the United States is, all right, how quickly, how many times can I work through the memory gate? And then, okay, great. Now I'm going to walk in there. I take this test in 15 minutes, have a 98%, and leave. And it's like it was on the CFI. And on the flight school to have actually taught me mm-hmm. and everything else is shepherd air. Yep. Like, I mean, I remember when we took our ATP CTP course in the U S like everybody sat there while they lecture to you. And it, these are long days in Dallas when they, you're going through ATP and they're going through stuff that if you're were a good flight instructor, you already knew. <laughs> <laughs> and in between, like, does like uh, scenes from air disasters, you know, they start t- like this American pilot starts telling you his own story. But in the background, you look around and everybody's just sitting on their laptops, running through Shepherd Air, not even paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. Which back home, which I'm not saying I condone not learning the material for everybody <laughs> listening. Like, you need to know the material if you want to be a pilot. But the reality of taking these written tests in the United States is that everybody uses Shepard Air because yep. you still have to get through. It's because it's not like you can not know. You still have to take an oral. You yeah. still have to take a KV. You know all this stuff. So yeah. So what was on this oral in in private pilot for Australia? So I can remember this vividly. The first thing as part of this oral was you sit down with the um, flight examiner or authorized testing officer. Um, a lot of the big schools have their own in-house testing officer that's just approved by CASA. Yep, do your stuff. We'll come in and check on you every once in a while. But yeah, you're basically autonomous for the most part. Um, and I remember sitting down for this test and he said, all right, he hands me a blank sheet of paper and says, go fill out everything you know about ALAs, authorized landing areas. So back home, you the can... The runway? Uh, yes, but No. So back home, because there's mm, a lot of land, but there's maybe two major airports per state, 
a lot of farmers and crop dusters, they have their own strips, but they've got to build these strips in, you know, under caster specific ways they want to do it. So it needs to be X amount of meters long, X amount of meters wide. It's got to have a flyover area, which is clear of any obstacles. It's got to be, you know, 2.5%. It's just, we have things back home called CAPS, Civil Aviation Air Publications. Do you know what CAPS is here in the US? It's a parachute. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Ours has an extra A in it. <laughs> Um, and basically, because you got you know, the regulations, and then you got the orders, and then you got the safety regulations. Caps were a way of just all right. All the laws are set out in the regulations. If you follow this cap, you'll follow the regulations, and you'll even be even more safe on top of it. So, this cap was about four pages long. Had diagrams. We basically had to handwrite out this cap for this test. Did that. Go back in and say, all right. Um, and then we went through the privileges and limitations of a private pilot license. So a limitation would be like, how old do you have to be? Or where can you go? Or what can you do? Can you fly twins? Can you fly IFI? IFI, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, basically just sort of walk through the regs. Uh, a little bit of systems involved. So in our case, it was 172. So what's the wingspan? What's a carburetor? Yeah, yeah you know, that kind of thing. Or how many batteries does it have? Or I don't know. Um, and then lastly, there was just, I think, a few meteorology questions because weather. Yeah, and I guess you're so tested through all these written courses, like these written tests that they make you do to begin with that there's probably not as many gotchas on the oral as there are, like, culturally here where the written test is kind of a foregone conclusion and then you you really got to, like, huff it. Yep. On the Okay, so you've got... What is on the private pilot flight? So the flight is mainly just a little bit of a navigation exercise. So in our case, because we were down in Melbourne, it involved a flight into Essendon for Class Charlie airspace, uh, into Moorabbin, which is Class Delta airspace. And then from there, you navigated around uh, the CTA steps. We went to a lovely airport called Kyneton, which sucks because it's a short runner, which is basically just a ski ramp. Um, and then you sort of flew after that. You sort of started making your way back to your home airport. So there's not so many maneuvers on it. Like I'm not hearing about stalls and steep turns. I'm hearing about they want to see you actually navigate. Yeah, because stalls and steep turns were done the GFPT. Gotcha. Okay, so it's kind of it's almost like an AQP uh version for a private pilot test where you you're validating that stuff earlier on. Okay. Yeah. Um, cause again, like you said, you could do it in the PPL if you chose to not do the GFPT, but that would just, you know, make your two hour nav. Uh, now this makes sense. Yeah. Just, you know, three, three and a half hours. My private pilot check red was 1.5 total. Yeah. They like, they want to see you be able to fly plan. You hit like your first two checkpoints and they're like, all right, cool. I feel sick. What should we do? Well, <laughs> we should probably divert. Okay. <laughs> And then you divert, you rip off a few maneuvers, come back home, rip off a few landings, and then you you get to take your buddy to lunch the next day yep. for a $100 hamburger. <laughs> so, so okay, so I got a sense what the private pilot is. What's the what's the commercial pilot process? So you add, you're adding on this commercial uh, rating. Yep. Um, so it's basically just more of the same. So you did the same thing as the PPL in terms of you jump in a plane. In this case, it'd be a... I think a complex aircraft needs manual propeller pitch control. Yeah, what'd you do your complex time in? Uh, I did mine in a 182 RG. Okay. So it was... We have an arrow here. Arrow. Like a Piper arrow. Oh, arrow. 
yeah. We do our, my old flight school now does it in a, a Victor air tour. Really? Yeah. And Victor got there to start making lawnmowers. Interesting. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. I think um, the lawnmower is a fixed pitch. Yeah, that's all it is. It's just, <laughs> you just hold it sideways. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, so, yeah, and all it is is just the same thing as the PPL. It's just uh, to a higher standard, I guess. So for the PPL, it said, all right, so we're going to go from, say, Point Cook to Essendon to Moorabbin. We're going to fly over to Kite and we're going to do Bendigo, then back down to Point Cook. And you, know, you do a diversion of perforce landing and a loss procedure in the summer. You wouldn't make it to Bendigo. Um, for the CPL, it had to be three-hour nav. So you'd still put controlled airspace in there. So my CPL was actually a little bit different because I went back home to Shepparton because Point Cook got a bit too expensive for me. So my CPL was Shepparton, Aubrey, which is another class Delta airspace, up to a town called Wagga Wagga, across to Wagga Europe. Wagga Wagga, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or just Wagga if you don't have enough yeah. time. Yeah. Um, then to an ALA called Urana, and then we were supposed to go to another ALA called Pyramid Hill. Got halfway there, it's like, nah, enough of this, let's get back home. So, so do you, what, what maneuvers do you have to learn differently for the commercial? Are there any additional maneuvers that you learn? Technically, no. For the PPL, for steep turns, you need to demonstrate them to 45 degrees. For CPL, it's up to 60. Yeah, that's the same here in the US, but we they they, add, they tack on a few maneuvers. Mm-hmm. They tack on uh, Lazy 8s, Chantel, um, Steep Spiral, and 8s uh, on Pylons is a maneuver we learn here. What was that last one? It's called 8s on Pylons. It's a, uh, the idea is that if you, like the, the best way I can describe it to you is, did you have to do turns around a point? No. Okay. So let's say you wanted to fly a, like a circle around a point and maintain a constant radius from the circle. Mm-hmm. You would have to change your bank, right? As your wind, as the wind shifted, you would have to change your bank to count, to count for your changing ground speed. Yep. With eights on pylons, the idea is that you do a figure eight around two points and you keep the bank angle the same. But you so you keep the same sight picture and you climb and descend as the wind increases and decreases to account for the changing ground speed. And that way you can effectively maneuver around two points by keeping and keep your sight picture the same. And you climb and descend to uh, basically slow your airspeed down or speed your airspeed up to affect your ground speed. Okay. And the whole purpose of it, in my understanding, is so that if I had a gun mounted on my wing, like, and I was a military pilot, like, I could t- just shoot people out the side of my wing. <laughs> like, that that's my understanding. The only practical application <laughs> of AIDS on pylons is for killing people. Oh, good. Um, the other, the other uh, maneuver that we learned that's kind of a tough one for people is the power off 180. Did you guys have to do that one at all or... Uh, is that on downwind power off and try and make the field? Yeah, uh, it's more than just make the field. It is you have to pick a landing point on the runway and you get zero feet short, 200 feet past as your tolerance. So you have to land in like a, a point plus 200. So effectively, if you pick the, the smart thing to do is to pick the thousand footers because then you get like a 350 foot wide landing zone. But mm-hmm. yeah, you pull it a beam it and it's not just make the field. It's actually hit the point. Okay. And that one gets people a lot here in the U.S. That's probably like our hardest maneuver okay um that there was nothing like that for a commercial um it wasn't to a standard like if you did say you know the power for 180 you made the field and let's say you landed just slightly long well that's still acceptable how do you not make the field 
That's, that's, that's the thing. It's like, you made the field. All right, cool. So you would have lived after this endeavor? Yeah. Um, if you did make the field, that's like... Oh. That's pretty suspect if you can't yeah. judge making a field. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it wasn't, oh, I chose to land here and you missed it. So that's a fail. It was just, well, you still made the field, I guess. Gotcha. Okay, so you... You just navigate forever. You navigate. You. It sounds like you circumnavigate Australia uh, on this <laughs> on this uh, check ride. So okay. So you get your CPL. What's the next step? So after the CPL, I'd imagine it's very similar here. You got two branches you could go through. You could either do your multi-engine command instrument rating, or you could opt to do a flight instructor rating, because both of them cost around about the same. And does a flight instructor achieve an instrument rating in doing it? No. So what people do here actually is most people here get their private, then they get their instrument. Yeah. And then they get their commercial. Okay. Because in the US when it requires 250 hours and you've got to build 250 hours of time and let's say you've got 60 hours in a wet private pilot license, how are you going to build that time? Well, it just makes sense to tack on the dual of the instrument rating and then uh, go get your commercial because that time is satisfied. Okay. Your instrument. So which way did you go? So initially, I went the instructor route. Really? I did. Because I absolutely love teaching people. Because flying is essentially my passion, as I'm sure it's yours as well. And probably some people listen to this have a definite passion of flying. Uh, so I love sharing my passion as well. So what better way to do that than to teach? Okay, so what is the what is the training for that involved then in... Again, it's it's changed slightly ever since I've gone through it. Because when I went through the instructor rating, it was a fifty-hour flight course, uh, and now it's just to a standard. So, um, for me, uh, there's a bigger emphasis on like the ab initio flight training, so all the beginning. So it was you designed up these briefs, so effects controls, straight and level, climbing, descending, that kind of thing. Um, and Do you then, have to teach like ground concepts too, or yeah? So you basically just go through all the theory of climbing, descending, and if you wanted to, um, some schools did, some schools didn't. It sort of depended on how it was structured. But uh, yeah, they go through the PPL theory, the CPL theory, and and so on. Um, but there was all the long briefs for all the main lessons. Then there were short briefs, which were the practical flying aspects. So this is what we're actually going to do in the plane. And then there was the actual flight itself, which was... Now, to get your flight instructor license, do you have to demonstrate proficiency on every single lesson? Or is it just that, like a random assortment? So what it was is you would demonstrate proficiency on every lesson. And then when the test comes, you only had to demonstrate one lesson. Okay, yeah. So in the U.S., we have to demonstrate four. Two of them, the FAA has already determined you're going to do these two. Mm-hmm. And then it's examiner's discretion on the other stuff. Okay. But they get a random sampling from like a book of all the stuff. And that's how they determine like what you're going to get tested on that day. Okay. So it sounds very similar. Um, when in this process do you throw on an instrument rating? Um, I watched Survivor Outback, and I will say it doesn't look like you really need an instrument rating in Australia ever. But <laughs> <laughs> when when do you – because what's weird to me is we're already at CFI, and we have not shot an approach yet. And here in the U.S., like, it's the reverse. Like, we're, we're shooting approaches before we're getting commercial licenses. So what, how does that figure into the whole map towards becoming an airline pilot? Um, 
so again, you can either choose to do that first or choose to do that later in life. Um, I chose to do mine later because, at least down in the Melbourne area, there was a lot more need for instructors than there was for instrument rated pilots. Um, and you can do it whenever. You can actually do the training for these things prior to getting a commercial. Um, it's just how I went about it. I did it a slightly different way, I guess. Gotcha. Um, so I did mine with the flight school I ended up working up with back in Shepparton. Um, and it was just, we did it on availability, I guess. Okay. So my, the other instructor I was working with would teach me on a day where you know, it was a little cloudy outside, let's go, you know, fly an ILS or an NDB approach. Cause we still use those back home. Yeah. An NDB approach. What do you mean? Like a GPS approach? Is that what you mean? <laughs> a good old non-directional beacon. Yeah, I don't know what an NDB, <laughs> I, I, I could, I could, if, if my life came down to uh, descending on an NDB approach, I'm going to use the iPad. I'm going to use the <laughs> iPad. I'm going to follow the iPad down on whatever course the iPad says, like with my geo referenced plate. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Um, so, okay, so you're you're building time and you're living in Australia. So what does the airline career like outlook look like there, right? In the US right now, pilot shortage, a little bit troubled by, you know, the lack of captains at the regionals causing some problems for FO hiring, but generally a pretty good outlook for getting hired. What's it like in Australia? It's a bit of a tough field to crack into, especially the airlines, uh, because there, like I sort of said earlier, there's sort of eight major airports, one for each state, and then there's maybe like a bit of a sub-airport, which we might occasionally fly into. Um, there's international destinations, of course, but um, there's, what, 30 million people living in Australia as opposed to 300 million over here. Yeah. So it's a matter of scale is the big issue. Um, before I came over to to fly in the States... I went to a bit of like a Qantas propaganda kind of thing in down in Melbourne. A Qantas propaganda thing. Let's hear it. <laughs> um, I, won't, <laughs> I won't go through all of it. But um, I just remember distinctly Qantas is, or the, the people up there. It's like, oh, Qantas proudly operate 200 flights a day. That's it's it. It's like, wow. That's like not even the Minneapolis like CRJ base. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Because yeah. when I came over to here and did the whole the Kool-Aid brewing in uh, my company, it was, we operate 2,000 flights a yeah. day. It's like, huh. All right. <laughs> so, so like, what happens to, what? what's the uh, the time requirement or the background requirement that it takes to really get hired? Do they have, does Australia have their version of the regionals? Do they, what, what, what's the, what's the outlook? I mean, I just use the word outlook, but, like, what is the pathway to eventually flying the A330? Yeah. In- so, there is a, a regional, um, both mainlines got their regional. So, you've got Qantas and Virgin are the two big players. Uh, Qantas have Qantas Link, Flying Dash 8s, and Virgin, I don't know what they're up to now because they kind of went belly up at the start of COVID. They're making their way back now, but I haven't really been on the scene to know what they're doing with VARA, which is Virgin Australia Regional Airlines, um, but they flew ATRs instead. Okay. So what's the what's the time requirement to get on with with them? So the minimum requirements that they list is a commercial license with a multi-engine command instrument rating uh, and ideally have all seven ATPL subjects completed. So in essence, 200 hours, 150 for the commercial and probably another 50 for the multi-engine. So that's the minimums that they state. 
Whether you'll get in on those minimums is a different so story. So they didn't have their Colgan 3407 in Australia. That kind of affected pilot hiring. Are you familiar with Colgan here? Uh, I think vaguely. It was the, the, the Dash 8 crash up in a Buffalo, New York that basically changed the dynamic forever on pilot hiring in the United States. Yep. Um, so you could theoretically get on with 200. I'm guessing you need to know someone at that point or it it is and aviation itself is a small industry in australia it's a tiny one so and it annoys me a little bit because i if i was in a, a position of power at these industries i'd want experience over greased palms mm-hmm. for my parts to get in um but yeah if you get in on 200 hours with Q-Link flying a dash Someone's definitely put in a good word for you. You're also going to be holding on to the back of the pl- tail of that plane at oh. 200 hours. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so so what, what do most people end up doing then? Do they go fly in other countries? Is that what they end up having to do? Or uh, There's two ways to do it. Or do they either, just stay forever flight instructors? You can either build your time flight instructing um, or you can opt to go north in the outback. Uh, and for that, you'd probably want your instrument rating. Uh, but basically just flying, I guess, charter around the top end. Uh, to all like the remote Aboriginal communities, that's a good way to build time as well. But uh, I prefer to be home, uh, doing what I loved rather than go on a bit of an adventure. <laughs> to yeah, the, to the hot desert. <laughs> um. So, so what? What for a lot of people is the breaking point where they say it's time to go to the U.S. and fly? So, about a thousand hours single, uh, if not even prior to that. Now, because when I was doing my training uh, or my time building coming over to the States was a bit of an unheard of kind of opportunity that really started in about 2017. Which is in conjunction with the pilot shortage really kicking off here. Yeah. Um, It's just you guys got desperate enough to look elsewhere. And of course, there's a big untapped well of pilots in Australia Mm -hmm. um, who are desperate to come over. (laughs) Really? Yep. I've got um, three mates of mine now. One's actually a mate of mine. We went to school together. The other two are, I guess, mates of a mate um, who he's given me their information to get them over here. And they're both, one's back in Australia now, but he's waiting for his ERJ class. Uh, The other one's just got told, about a couple of weeks ago, just got told that his date was pushed back just because of how training in Skywest. Oh, the same thing that every other Skywest and every other regional is going through right now. Yeah. It's like, oh, sorry, we don't have slots for you now. We'll call you back in the summer. Yeah. Um, and now my my actual mate's got the same letter. So, yeah, I mean, that's just the, the, the nature of the game right now. Hmm. Um, because it, it's really interesting. I was, I've was i seen some stuff where, like, Spirit Airlines is now going to Australia on recruiting events. And I've read some union stuff that implies that the unions aren't really happy with that because they view it as devaluing American labor. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess, so. so how hard is it? as an Australian pilot to get on at a place like SkyWest. What what do you have to what, what is there I'm guessing there's no conversion of certificates, but is there like what what is what is the process behind the scenes? I'd say the hardest thing was getting up at 3 a.m. to do the interview online. Um but after that you uh, That interview must have seemed like the easiest thing on earth after all this like theory stuff you had to learn. Well that's what I was quite surprised oh cuz I did try to get into QLink before I came to the states. And Q-Link's questions for their interview was they're kind of negatively geared to sort of see how you dance around them. Like the f- second question I got was, what was your worst day in aviation? Um, so I'd come off the back of that. I'd apply for Sky West. 
Also, just as an aside, it took a year for Qantas to say no to me. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that story later, but that's probably a story for another time. Um, but from the day I applied to Qantas to the day they said no to me was 13 months. When I applied for SkyWest, I had the job within two weeks. And I'm sitting there going, what? <laughs> what? That's wild. Yeah. But that's how bad the pilot shortage got here, right? They, they, and, and the one thing in the U.S., you probably learned this really early on, was like the interview is just like a box-checking aptitude event. Training is the interview. Mm. Training is the toll gate. Yeah. The American, American Airlines, not American Airlines, the airline, but like airlines in America will give anybody really a chance at training. You just have to get through it, and it's not easy. Like that's probably the hardest, <laughs> the hardest part. Um, so you 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 come over here, and and what was your process? So you just moved to the Senesta in Salt Lake, or you said like, how did you pack up one day? Basically, I went down to my local uh, shops. I bought two of the biggest suitcases I could find, and I went home and said, uh, I've got to fit my life into these. Just prioritize what I can. Um. And I flew all the way to Salt Lake off my own, my own bat. I didn't find out till maybe six months into my time here that they were supposed to fly me at least from LA to Salt Lake, which kind of would have been nice, but yeah, not salty. Um, and I made the decision to get here about two weeks early, so I didn't rock up the day before my class date because that way I could get here, get like a bank account sorted, get a social security number, that yeah. whole shindig going, get like a new SIM card for a phone. Kind of get the lay of the land before I'm thrown into training. How stressful was it to just throw away like life in Australia to come here to fly a CRJ? In a word, it was very melancholy. Um, I remember my last day at my local flight school because it was just, I had a ball working there. Mm -hmm. And then when I left, I thought, oh, okay. Um, I mean, I could always go back, I suppose. Or at least I hope I can. Um and then coming over here to not, I guess, because if you sort of like look through a mirror and squint a little bit, Australia is a little bit like America. Like we still speak mainly English. You do drive on the wrong side of the road, and but mostly everything's the same. Um, just getting like the culture was a little bit different. Um, and of course, the mountains and the snow. Yeah, up until that point, Salt Lake. You're in Salt Lake, man. That's like a completely different environment than. Than Australia. Yeah, I'm um, here in the mountains. I'm. It's actually snowed one day. I'm looking at it going, what? Yeah, I just read about this in books. This yeah. isn't real. Um, so, yeah, getting here wasn't too bad. I had some problems with hotels early on, but, again, that's not really here or there. How hard was training? Was it because I was – I have to imagine that there was some differences with how we approach flying compared to Australia. So how hard was training for you? What were the what were the in, the inflection points when you were going through it? Where it where the the difference in your background carried into flying a jet, making that more difficult? Um, I'd say the only thing that was really difficult is the things that we don't do back home, like um, landing on say icy runways and having to think about landing on icy runways. Um, just like the operational challenges that you you would eventually face. Okay, so but the the actual sim training itself was nothing going too. It was it was it's it's nerve wracking as is any That's sort horrible. of training. It's event. the worst thing ever. I mean, it, like I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, but I could probably <laughs> go through like five packs a day. 
Um, but I was I was lucky enough to have a really good uh, instructor, at least for my maneuvers training, um, who was also married to an Australian, which definitely put me at ease. Oh, that helps, yeah. Yeah, so we're just essentially making, um, just cracking Aussie jokes for a while. And my sim partner was actually from Arkansas, who was just sort of left in the dark. That's <laughs> tough for the sim partner. So um, how'd you end up in Minneapolis? That was uh, kind of the... Was that just the first base that they gave you as a junior FO and you're like, that's where I'm going to live? Basically, because I, I, I was of the opinion, it's like, well, I don't have a home to call home in the States. And Skyway said, well, you're going to go to Minneapolis. And I thought, uh, okay. Um, I originally wanted Chicago because the man I used to work with back home, he came over to Skywest before I did. And he was based in Chicago. So I thought, at least if I get to Chicago, we can hang out together just like old times. Um and uh, he can sort of give me the scoop on basically how American life works outside of like a training environment. Um, but then I did an IOE through Chicago and I promptly wanted none of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Chicago flying at Sky West is good, but it is, it's a tough airport to like actually be a pilot at. And especially when it's like your first dip into the scenario. So you sit and you go on, my first time was there at night and we're, taxiing out at the end of the alley i'm like oh, where even am i that's the first uh, question i have to ask yeah the captain's being like told them we're at the yankee i'm like what is that like, he's <laughs> yeah. not even charted how does he know <laughs> yeah and then you know i'm expecting oh it'll just be like um what is it bravo november to november 10 to depart 28 or whatever it is yeah, yeah. so because you know and to his credit he was really trying my check him and he was like all right so this is the standard taxi we usually get this we're probably going to get this do you remember his name uh no unfortunately i do not I had a guy named dan witt out of uh chicago that um, i did my iowa with and he, bless his heart he was just carrying me along <laughs> But yeah. I've never seen someone single pilot a CRJ before, but he did it. Oh, it's very impressive because <laughs> I'm just sitting there going, oh, just good luck, man. I got good no luck, idea what's yeah. going on. <laughs> so like how hard was it adapting to um, like American life here? You know, OK, so you, you chose Minnesota, I'm guessing, you know, Skywest chose Minnesota for you. You decided to stay here. Yep. Um, with being a pilot, how hard was it to kind of adapt to the whole new vibe of, you know, walking out of the A gates in Minneapolis? Um, I didn't find it too difficult. At least I don't think I found it too difficult. Um, I could probably have a lot of regressed memories in my mind at the moment that I'm not yeah. <laughs> willing to share um, or can't remember to share. But um, I considered myself a bit of a slower learner when it comes to hands-on sort of things. So when actually out there flying... Um, a lot of the times, especially early on, I'm sitting there going, all right, so that says, you know, 2,000 feet minute descent. Should we start down now? The captain's like, oh, sure, I guess, whatever. Whatever you want to do, man. Like, <laughs> Go yeah. for your life. Yeah. It's like, all right, cool, I'll do that then. Because um, I think most people say, oh, you know, a couple hundred hours and they start to feel comfortable in the plane. For me, it's like, ah, uh, yeah, it's not too bad. I could probably fly my way out of a paper bag, but a few more hours would be kind of nice just so I could feel comfortable. Uh, but that's just me. I will say throughout the training, because um, training in Salt Lake was one thing, but when you actually go out there and fly the line, that's when like the real training begins. Mm -hmm. um, so flying with just like a garden variety captain. Um, Trying to figure out how to be a chameleon. Yeah. yeah. And you have an accent, so I'm sure that you were asked about that a lot. 
Yep. Um, and now I just roll with it. So people ask me, oh, you, where are you from? You're not from around here. I'm like, yeah, from Louisiana. I'm from Louisiana. <laughs> just watching their face going, just you see the gears in their head going, mm, I don't want to say he is, but I don't want to yeah. call him out on it at the same time. Do you have um, any desire in the U.S. to get back into GA and doing flight instruction here on the side? Is that something that interests you? Because we have a nice general aviation culture that it sounds like you don't have as much of in um, Australia. But we have like a, you know, our, our, it's it's surprising just how much GA we have, especially compared to Europe. Hmm. Um, so does that interest you at all, like renting a 172 and going out? Or are you able to with your licenses? Or So I didn't actually convert any of my licenses when I came over here. They just issued me the ATP based on the hours I had and the training I did. Um, so even though I've got 1,500 hours in the 152 and a Warrior, I can't fly those over here. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't have those on my license. So I could probably go out with an instructor uh, and just go for a jaunt around the cities. Um, I would l- like to pursue at least getting back into GA. Um, I would like to go back into an instructor role, but... That's probably going to take a lot more time since I don't know the American sort of side of things too well. Yes. How much did you have to... So, like, for us, we learned Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Coolio. You barely interact with it on your ride. When you look at, like, our sectional charts and you look at the way we do things, how hard would it be for you to kind of piece together <laughs> the the process out here? I mean, it, frankly, in Minnesota, if you can't get anywhere, like, our airspace is so simple. It's like, you go, like, 10 miles west, man, and, there's, and you, 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 you don't see anything until maybe Aberdeen. But, and that, even that's untowered. But you go out to L.A. and SoCal, and there's some pretty intense flying out there. How hard would it be for you to piece that together? Um, I, would, I, I would definitely want to sit down with someone and go through it. I wouldn't just say, oh, yeah, she'll be right, and just go out there and have a crack. Um, I will get myself into trouble. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't actually looked at sectional charts out that way, but I'd imagine they are somewhat complicated. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. You wouldn't know because when you're an airline pilot, like they make way for you and you don't even know what airspace, the airspace you're in doesn't matter. You're yeah. That's right. Like, you're the only time, a white line on your MFD. Like, this is cool. Yeah. The only time I know about airspace is when someone out there and it's like, oh, you've already to the class bro of airspace. And that's just like... <laughs> and that's their subtle way of telling you that you left it. That's yeah. their subtle way of saying, hey, you left this. <laughs> yeah. And I see that guy, whoop, Whoops. sucks to be there. <laughs> really? So, yeah, I mean, I, I it, it just interests me because I'm surprised that... I mean, I'm not surprised on one hand because flying a jet, you're so insulated from all the other rules. But on the same hand, I'm also... But on the other hand, I'm very surprised that they didn't ask more of you to like convert it and understand a bit more about the way it works here so i'm i'm on one hand not surprised but on the other hand i am there's a story i like to tell in terms of differences that it's i got didn't get caught out with it but it's i don't know if i told you this story when we flew together but how to turn on pilot activated lighting you told me this one but you need to tell everybody it because this is a fantastic (laughs) story this is a fantastic one okay it's also a bit of a cautionary tale if anyone listening to this because there will be another wave of Australian pilots coming over in the next couple of months that may or may not know how to turn on American pilot-activated lighting. So um, back home, we have pilot-activated lighting, and if you're lucky, it's got an AFRU attached to that airport, so it's an automated frequency response unit. So to turn on lights in Australia, it's you hold down the push-to-talk for three seconds, let it go for one, hold it for three, let it go, hold it for another three. So it's... 
I've got a bit of a head bob. I've got to do when I do this because I used to be a musician. It's one, two, three. One, two, three. <laughs> one, two, three. And then, bam, the lights come on. You can't change the intensity. It's just you get what you're given. And if you've got that afro, it'll say, Shepherd and CTAF, runway lights on. And it's lovely because you know you've turned them on from 30 miles away. So I was on a flight in the northern Michigan from Pelson to Alpena. Sky West, yeah. Yes, uh, just lovely flying. Um, and for anyone not familiar with this area, it's uh, about 50 miles from airport to airport, I think. And it's dark. There's nothing up there. Yeah, it's just black as the ace of spades. It's just dark. I can't see anything. And the captain leans over and says, why don't you turn the runway lights for me? I'm like, all right, cool. Keep in mind, 50 miles in a jet, it's like 10 minutes flight. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, can do. That's something I can do. I know how to turn on runway lights. Done it all the time. One, two, three. <laughs> One, two, three. And I got the head bob going. And I've seen that. And I'm looking out. Cause it's a clear night, but it's just, you know kind of want runway lots to land and i'm looking at where the runway kind of should be i'm like hmm i can't see it over there uh i'll try again one two three <laughs> one two three one two three and i'm like oh, i just can't see it over there and the captain's like you turn about i'm like oh, i thought i did i can't see it it's like how many did you give it it's like three I'm like oh no i'll give it seven <laughs> you want seven you want seven it's like yeah okay one, oh, two, three. <laughs> so I'm about four or five, three second pulses into this, and he's kind of now looking over me, bobbing my head and holding down the radio transmitting button. And like, he's like, um, what are you doing over there? Like, I'm trying to turn on the runway lights like you asked me to. Like, what does it look like I'm doing? He's like, why are you holding it down for so long? I'm like, because that's not how you turn on the runway lights? He's like, no, it's like quick taps. And then he shows me, it's just... Seven quick taps of the push to talk, and then bam, there's the runway. I'm like, holy crap! <laughs> no, and that's got to be that's got to be the weird part. Uh, that's got to. It's like it's little things like that though that you've probably, I don't know, like and maybe ACC interaction I've seen here is a little less um, like organized is the way to put it. Like it's a little bit more. It's a little bit more informal with the way we talk to ATC. I don't know if it's the same in Australia. Like you go to Canada, they read you essays. Over, yeah. yeah, but you come here. Yeah, Canada and Australia is very similar in terms of... Really? Yeah. Um, like, it surprised me coming over here when we're coming up to, like, a, you know, a cell in front of us. It's like, oh, I just request left deviations due weather. It's like, right, how far do you want to go? Just left deviations. Because back home, if you request left deviations, you've got to tell them how far left you want to go. Either up to 20 degrees or five miles. Over here, I'm like, so you can just request left deviations and then just fly to LA so yeah basically you got questions somewhere somewhere over Colorado but that's basically what you can do and that just kind of astounded me how I guess relaxed it is how much freedom they give you um I don't know if that's part of the informality America. of it all <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a good word for it I suppose I should probably put that in something so um <laughs> Really quickly, the last thing I wanted to talk about before we get into trivia was just your when you upgrade to captain. Um, when did you know that you were ready? Did you have any concerns, you know, just given that you had the Australian background or um, just kind of wanted to get your take on anything there that you might have had that affected your perception of upgrade given that you didn't do your flight training here? Again, it's it's back to me as a person because um, people took the 1,000-hour upgrade. 
Um, now you have to take the thousand hour upgrade. Oh yeah, it's, now you have to. Okay. You have to. Um, but uh, back when I did mine, it's like oh, I, I've got my thousand hours. I could upgrade. For me, I'd probably want a little bit more time because I, uh, knock on wood, um, as an FO, I had a pretty okay time of things. I didn't see too many like systems fails. I didn't see too many. Uh, disgruntled passengers. I didn't see too many sort of irregular operations. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted a bit more time just in case maybe something's going to come up and I can sort of see how to deal with it. Yeah, because you look over to the left and it's just your reflection. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. You know, I just, I need an adult. Captain's there. It's like, all right, cool. He'll handle it. And now it's just, yeah, I'm looking at myself going, oh, I am the adult. I am the adult. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, it took me a little bit longer to upgrade just for that reason. And also, um, 2020 happened, which also torpedoed anyone's hopes of progression. Oh, yeah. Yeah, COVID, I heard about that. Yeah, it's just, you know, a little a little bug that sort of a came little, along. A little bump in the road, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I end up not doing much flying in 2020, as most people didn't. Do you, have, do you have plans to go back to Australia once you can get the time to kind of be competitive back at Qantas? Or are you, are you pretty happy staying here? I'm actually pretty happy staying here, in all honesty. Um if I could, again, if I was in one of those positions of power, I would change a few things. Um, but I'm not, so I'm just going to have to deal with it. But uh, all in all, I'm actually quite happy with how flying is handled over here. Um, like the training's handled fairly well, um, at least with my limited experience with one airline. Um, but from what I hear other people talking about, training at other airlines is training pretty good. Training at other airlines, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, if not even better. Um yeah, and it's just um, a nice atmosphere as well. Are you are you hopeful that one day, like American United and Delta, will open up opportunities for Australians to go fly there, or is that something that you care about, or are you kind of just happy with the little corner of the B gates that you've made your that you've made your own? <laughs> uh, I won't lie; it would be nice if um, they opened up uh, because. How many airlines currently take Australians? We've got SkyWest, GoJet. I think Mesa takes us now. Um, Air Wisconsin, PSA, um, Piedmont. So there's seven regionals. And then the, the ultra-low-cost carriers. Yeah, well. I so think, you got Spirit. I don't Spirit. know Frontier, but I know Spirit and Sun Country both do. Sun Country do. Um, I don't think Allegiant does, but Frontier does. Um, there's Avalo, I think down in Texas, another 7-3 operator. Atlas take us as well really yep um the only one that well the big players anyway uh the only ones that don't seem to take us are the four legacy ones like even southwest takes us now really yeah but not delta not american not united and as far as i'm aware not alaska unless you have a green card it's probably some sort of paperwork thing and they just have enough demand Right. They, they they don't have recruit. Delta does not have a recruiting problem. Mm. You know, I mean, this, that, that at the end of the day, that's the low cost carriers that are actually, you know, not to get into the nuances of hiring, but it's like when the majors are no longer requiring turbine PIC, then how are Frontier Spirit and all these other low cost carriers supposed to compete with that? So, I mean, it's 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 the unfortunate nature of like how many pilots we have at that level that probably affects you. Okay. Well, that was a depressing way to end, uh, <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to finish it with some trivia. And unfortunately the internet is out to here today, but I have the questions memorized and it's Australia trivia. So if you get them wrong, oh, then 
But, I'll just see myself out now. Yeah, I'll, you'll just have to see yourself out. Okay, so the first question I had was, how many states are there in Australia? Um, this is technically a bit of a trick question. So you've got Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, and Western Australia. So there's six states, but you've also got two territories, Northern Territory and Australian Capital Territory. Okay, well, we're going to consider that one correct. All right. What day is Australia Day? The 26th of Jan. Really quickly, what is celebrated on Australia Day? Um, Because that's the correct answer, but what is celebrated? uh, It's basically kind of similar to our... It's actually a bit of a hot topic at the moment. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, Because there's a few people trying to make it Invasion Day. Ah, okay. Well... But it's it's kind of like our... Our 4th of July. Okay, it's your 4th of July. Uh, uh, kind of. It's not our independence from the British because we're still part of the Commonwealth. Yeah. But um, it's basically the day where we just decided, yep, this will be the day we decided to become a country that um, settled by foreigners. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Who designed, who's the architect who designed the Sydney Opera House? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Ooh, incorrect. No idea was not his name. It was like, and I don't have it in front of me because I have this big page. It just says this website can't be reached. Um, it's his name's like Jorn Utzen. Oh, it's like a good a Australian Danish, name. A Dan- yeah, a very very traditional Australian <laughs> name. Um, okay, so there's a lot of mining in Australia. I think the town's called like Cody Perd or something. It's like a coastal city. It's like a big rock that they mine down there. It's like South Cody or something. I don't know. See, the problem is when you don't have the internet. Are you talking about just... Cooper Pedy in the Cooper Opal Mine? Cooper Pedy, yeah. Opal <laughs> Mine. Look at that. Look at that. See, see, I'm having a free ball here. I'm having a, I'm having a, I, I have nothing right now. I am, I'm just remembering all this research I did on Australia last night. Okay, but you already knew. You just you said, are you talking about the Opal Mines? Well, that answers the question on its own. Okay, the last question. What is the CRJ900 dual engine failure memory item? Oh. Huh. God damn. All right, continuous condition on. If airspeed, uh, no, if N2 continues to wind down below 40% N2, both engines are cut off. Oh, shit. Why do you do this to me? Are we going to get this one wrong? Are we going to fail CQ right here? I might get this one wrong. Um, yeah, both engines are cut off. ADG manual handle pull. Once. Uh, electrical power has been established. Stab trim channel two is engaged. Um, and then you set up your target airspeed above flight level 340.7, blow up to 40 knots. I think I missed something though. There's one last line. Oh, well, you've got to be kidding. Maintain that until you're ready to relight engines. Yeah, that's what it is. Very nicely done. <laughs> it wasn't word for word. You'd probably fail CQ at that answer. You'll want to study before you go back to the sim. <laughs> That was pretty. That was pretty sloppy. But uh, I mean, I admire. I admire. I can still do it word for word, and I'm not even working on that plane anymore. But. I mean, I would have gotten that done by the time we got to twenty five thousand feet. Well, it's twenty three. Yeah, that that procedure in the QRH is super long. Actually, it yeah. is. I, I don't know if you if you like pulled open the QRH for that procedure, but that procedure is nuts. I was gonna say no. I've done it the same, uh, and it's we did it, and then we sort of sat there waited till we get to the. 25 to ECS. I can't remember what the. I think it's 23 or 21 for the engine relight in the 900. Yeah, it's, I believe it's 21. Yeah. Um, 
uh, then yeah, we went through the procedure, and then we're sitting there until twenty one thousand feet before we can start. Well, use the APU to relight an engine. Gotcha. Actually, one last question. Well, we won't end it on the depressing note. You talked about wanting to get back into instruction. Have you ever considered line check airmen? I have actually, um, and I would really like to. But at the same time, Sky West says, if you want to become a line check airman, we kind of want a year's work out of you, um, which I guess if I had gotten my act together earlier on, because you needed either 300 hours command or nine months time as part and command before you could become a check airman. Um, and if I had worked on it back then, I probably would have. But again, it comes back to me being, uh, I kind of want more time just to see what things might happen. Um, I kind of dilly-dallied a little bit and now uh, in the next couple of months I'm trying to look to move on to maybe other airlines. Yeah, there's some sunny, I mean, you, you like the the sun from Australia, so I could understand why you'd be interested <laughs> in uh, moving on. No, I get it. It's just uh, the line check airmen, you know, it's something that seems cool. The the check ride and checking process for it seems absolutely brutal though. Yeah. Um, It seems like it'd be a fun job one day down the road, but... Down the road, it would be. I, I, and, and I think the logic that I've heard a lot of people have is, well, I fly with such new guys all the time. I might as well get paid for it. But I've also I've heard that some of the some of the scheduling issues and, and whatnot make life pretty difficult. Uh, the airline kind of puts you on call 24-7, essentially, even with the, the payover. Right? But we don't have to get into the details of that because that's <laughs> it's not interesting for, for everybody listening. So with that, I guess you passed trivia today. So not only do you get lunch, but you get a Starbucks gift card. So Any chance I got back that a caribou gift card? Oh, <laughs> you need to learn more about America and uh, our Starbucks dependency. I mean, we tried Starbucks in Australia. It, it failed. Did Starbucks really fail in Australia? Yep. No way. Yeah. What is your big co- – who's the coffee provider of Australia? Um, I mean, we got chains, I guess, like Hudson's Coffee or Gloria Jeans. But Have you been to Tim Hortons up in Canada? Uh, technically, yes. Um, I was waiting for the van one day in Toronto, and I figured, ah, I'll go to Tim Hortons. And- there's that Tim Hortons across the street over there, yes. Yeah. Did, um, was it like the 4 a.m. van, though, where you went over and there's like nobody working, or was it – Oh, no, I'm at the airport waiting for the van to take me to the hotel. Oh, so you went to the Tim Hortons down there. Yeah, that one is a chaotic Tim Hortons down there, though. It's wild, but I, I didn't actually buy anything. I bought a carton of chalky milk and I drank that instead. <laughs> oh, well, that's, well, I don't know what chalky milk is, but I'll assume you're talking about chocolate milk. And that's another American thing you'll have to, I'll have to introduce to you. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I hope to see you soon at an airline that I'm currently in training at. Working on it. We'll see what happens. Working on it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> This was another episode of Living in Flight. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe for more exclusive aviation content. Have any topic ideas or want to be featured on our podcast? Send us a message at listen at livinginflight.com. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, this is Living in Flight.